0: Welcome to The Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host, Ali Houston, as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with The Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of The Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. All right, and we are recording, and I'm lucky enough to have with me today Dr. Priyanka Wali who's a Californian internal medic specializing in obesity, diabetes, and metabolic syndrome, and a stand-up comedian. Welcome.
1: Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to to be here. It's a long overdue podcast recording after many reschedulings, so thank you very much.
0: Sure, yeah. Um, and uh, I, I first saw you um, online when you um, you... Gave information to the uh, dietary guideline panel in <laughs> in America, and a kind of like potted history is that the the American food guidelines have kind of reverberated around the world for about fifty years, and have been of I mean, equally probably praised and attacked for various reasons, um, but. I think you had a very compelling a uh, attack against them. And um <laughs> you, you know, the the format of this, every is every five years now they, they have people, uh kind of stakeholders you might call them, um, like uh doctors and um nutritionists and so on, they come up and they, they say their piece and they've got a couple of minutes. So you have to be succinct and you have to be punchy. And I think your background as a stand-up comedian really stood in good stead. And you brought that into it because you said, if laughter was the best medicine, then the nutritional guidelines are best practice because they are a joke, and a joke, <laughs> a joke that's fallen flat. Um, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said that the committee doesn't know their audience. The fact that one in five of their audience has diabetes and one in three has pre-diabetes. So it kind of it's a great line to start with, and then it's it got serious very quickly. Um, so can you maybe? outline what took you to that point in your life where you're standing in front of the dietary guideline uh, committee saying that to them?
1: Well, yeah. So, I mean, I've been practicing for several years now and I've seen how these committees work. You know, people go there, they present the data, the committee nods, smiles, and then people move on there in their lives and nothing actually changes. And essentially, after taking care of enough patients and seeing what's going on, I realized I felt a lot of anger about what's happening right now, not just in the state of the United States, but the world. And I realized that it was time for a different approach, that playing nice was no longer going to work because that's what physicians have been doing for many years. And so I essentially channeled all the anger and the rage that I have felt uh, as a physician about this cause. And the speech kind of wrote itself in a way. I mean, I, I wrote that speech on the airplane ride on the way to Washington, D.C. I hadn't had anything written before then, but I did have the the, the rage and the anger that has been in me since I've practiced and been affected by it. So I, I knew that my approach was going to be different and that was intentional, because I think the committee needed to hear things from a different perspective. And to be honest, there's a lot of controversy about whether those hearings actually even make an impact, like whether whether the committee actually uses those hearings to affect their decision making or whether they've already made their decision and this hearing is more of a formality. I don't know, and frankly, I don't really even care because that giving that talk was therapeutic for me in and of itself to be able to express. And you're hundred percent right that the stand-up comedy background played a role in this because they told us you get three minutes and you can't go over. So already in my mind, the comedian mind was like, okay, three minutes set. Don't run the light. Like try and get an applause break, you know, all the things. And, um, and so I did sort of have that in mind. And if you watch the video, you see that at exactly three zero zero, I I get off the, yeah, I call it getting off the stage, but like, yeah, I, I walked away and that was it. And it was what I'd like to think a tight three-minute set, but it was a tough crowd. That's definitely <laughs> what I can say. Um, and it's so important as an artist to really be in touch with the emotion behind the action like any anything you do whether whether it's performing standup comedy or seeing a patient or giving a speech in front of the USDA it's so important to be in touch with the emotion that's driving that and even though that speech was very angry and you know, I said things that um were uncomfortable for people to hear. You know, it was still coming from a place of love because at the end of the day, I care deeply about the American people. I care deeply about those affected by diabetes. I want them to get better, to feel healthy, to be healthy. So my intention really was from a are kind and good and loving place even though the delivery was not that but it was a very intentional decision to do that
0: yeah that makes sense and i mean you must have a caring side or you know you probably wouldn't have gone into medicine however you talk about the rage i mean what was it in your experience that created rage
1: well many things um you know if if diabetes was war then i have seen firsthand prisoners of this war people who have literally lost their eyesight lost their fingers and toes um died had brain damage literal prisoners of this war and you could argue that on some level when you expose yourself to that much suffering, you're ripe for developing PTSD from exposure to that. And, And I think because I've seen so many people suffer from the consequences of our nutritional guidelines, it's had a profound effect on me in the sense that I am very sensitive now to the suffering and literal death and dismemberment of uh, my colleagues, constituents, and patients. And slowly over time, I mean, you look back and you take a look at the bigger picture and you're like, wow, I'm just this one person, but there's a whole other system going on that is affecting why this is happening. And so that's from a more systemic view where one part of the rage builds up, even from a personal standpoint, I'm Kashmiri Indian, South Asian populations are very high risk for developing metabolic syndrome. I have insulin resistance on both sides of my family. My grandmother died from complications of diabetes. She had vascular dementia. And it was a very difficult process personally to see her go slowly, to see someone's personality just get slowly whittled away. So it's like, I've lost my own kind to this war. You know, my skin is in the game too. So the rage has always been there. I mean, it started probably from my exposure in medical school, and then it just slowly grew and grew.
0: And was it always clear what the root causes were? Uh, Is it even clear now? And how would you apportion the 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 root cause to um, the the problem, which is you know obviously that the result or the symptom is that so many people have um, this dreadful diabetes. But what 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 do you think the causes? How do you think the causes break down?
1: Well, I remember being a medical student and I was taking care of a patient who had had a stroke and I was reading about the history of this patient and reading oh this person had high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol. And then I started to think like oh, you know, these were all preventable illnesses and somewhere along the way a thought came to my mind that you know this was all because you know if this person hadn't been exposed to so much sugars and and all the things perhaps this entire thing could have been avoided and and then i was like you know it's crazy that the government subsidizes corn to make it cheap and it's crazy that high fructose corn syrup is so affordable And I remember thinking at that time that, gosh, I mean, if the government stopped subsidizing corn and the food that is bad for you wasn't so cheap, I bet you people would make different choices in terms of what they should and shouldn't be eating. And that was the first time I started to get this idea that like, okay, this is a bigger systemic issue than just me taking care of a stroke patient. I've always been the type of person to ask about the root cause of things, the etiology, to really go to a root cause analysis. And for me, it kept coming back to these more systemic, broader decisions. So I guess then when the nutritional guidelines opportunity came up, it was just like something that had been brewing in me for for. Um, you know, almost a decade—probably more than a decade, actually.
0: Yeah, I was ready to really come out.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that's for sure. <laughs> some so long, that, some been of been my there? friends that know me personally, they were—you know—they were just really surprised because my my pers- my personality is not like what the USDA speech was. That hmm. was, you know, I'm I'm I don't identify as an angry individual and I think if the people that know me in my life wouldn't necessarily label me as that but that speech was definitely angry and intentionally so
0: so what's the what's the picture like on the ground at clinics where you are when it comes to using food as medicine
1: well um It's very regional. I have to admit, practicing here in San Francisco, um, there is a little bit of popularity about nutrition compared to other parts of the United States. I think there's a little bit more awareness of nutrition in California. I'm not saying things are perfect. People still have medical issues in California. But for example, like here in city of san francisco there's a sugar tax on soda that's part of what the city implemented and if i'm not mistaken i think oakland the city of oakland is also looking to implement something similar so i'm certainly in an environment that's a little bit uh, more skewed towards being open to it um if i were to go to a different state, maybe the South, maybe uh, one of the states that suffers from obesity at a much more severe level. Um, I think it would it would be a different set of challenge. And then you you factor in people's socioeconomic status um, and whatnot, and that kind of changes things as well.
0: Yeah the the name of your podcast. Uh, pre-existing condition is more of an american thing to do with insurance companies i mean (laughs) we get it here when we're buying travel insurance or life insurance but americans battle with getting covered by medical insurance if they have pre-existing conditions which is kind of like uh it's always seemed like a a sneaky trick where it's just not fair you know you you, you're, you're telling the company that you want medical insurance to make sure that you can get treatment for whatever condition you have and they say well you can have treatment for whatever condition as long as you don't have it and i mean <laughs> what's what's that like to work around and what's the picture like specifically for diabetes as a pre-existing condition
1: well everyone has a pre-existing condition any person that's born is a pre-existing condition you can even argue that the trauma of birth itself would qualify as a preexisting com- condition. So you're absolutely right that this is a loophole. In fact, um, President Obama got rid of that clause, preexisting condition, because that was actually a, a loophole that insurance companies would use to not cover people who were more sick so that they would only cover people that weren't as sick. And if you have a bunch of healthy people paying into a system, it's a lot more lucrative than a bunch of people with many issues paying into a system. Um, that pre-existing condition clause was revoked under President Obama. However, I'm not entirely clear now in terms of what Donald Trump is doing, uh, whether that's coming back, I'm not really sure but that definitely was a thing. And technically it's, it's completely wrong. I mean, even the idea of a company profiting off of the illness of others is in essence unethical. Um, so, I mean, I don't know what to say. I think there should be single payer or Medicare for all. I think it should just be everyone gets access period. and and there's no questions asked and you remove all these claws. At the end of the day, what's sad is that the the illness of every person impacts every other person because the societal cost of even a small group of people suffering from diabetes impacts the entire community. In, in, In many ways, we're all connected. So to exclude individuals based off of the their prior illnesses is a completely disconnected way of thinking about just our entire world
0: yeah absolutely I think that I mean I think that there are uh not to stray too too far into the weeds, but I think that there are industries where handing it over to private companies can actually result in pretty good Uh, results like you know like the airline industry kind of is incentivized by having a a a zero um zero percent fatalities record for example and so if a company wants to be profitable it has to be extremely safe and so good but when it comes to hospitals it's always struck me that you know you're an advantage if you've got um more patients and better data so you keep that to yourself whereas in the uk where it's like a single-payer type of system paid for through progressive taxation you kind of you know all the all hospitals share data so you've got like 70 million people um all in the one system and all that data is pooled and shared and analyzed and uh centralized so you can really get a lot of value out of um running the system like that obviously there's a certain disincentive for efficiency but i think it's worth it and i agree with you i think that's the way it should be with health i think it's, it's industry specific but i, I think that the incentive is just not necessarily there to number one to actually make patients better for profit i think that the pharmaceutical industry shows that you know i mean um there's 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 not really much profit in a pill that'll just make people better
1: yeah, man, there are problems.
0: So, I mean, what's that like to work work around day in day out?
1: It's it's um it's disheartening. It's frustrating. It's um it's uh, demoralizing, and physician burnout is a real thing. Um, it's it's definitely a real thing. And I think it's a major silent epidemic happening. Just to quote some statistics, the American Psychiatric Association said that one doctor kills themselves a day by suicide. And the most common specialty is ironically psychiatry. So it's demoralizing for the patients too because patients need more than 10 to 15 minutes to have their needs addressed. It takes time to treat someone. It takes time to heal someone. So patients are demoralized. This is why we've seen an increase in the influx of alternative therapies like naturopathy, acupuncture, chiropractic, not, not to disparage any of those modalities. There, there's validity to all modalities to a certain sense, but people have found disappointment in the Western system, so they're going to alternative practitioners to get treatments and it's interesting because that's why you'll you'll see naturopaths or chiropractors that know more about the ketogenic diet than board certified physicians and it's because they've taken the time to to learn about it but patients also are noticing that these individuals are taking time to actually get to understand them and their health needs. So the system is a reflection of what's going on, And from my perspective, the, the Western system is critically ill in the sense that we have truly failed patients on multiple levels. It's not even about the nutrition. You know, you take a look at the the opioid crisis here in the United States and what's happened. People have actually died because physicians made the wrong decisions. They prescribed opioids because they believed that that was the best thing at the time. But what was going on is that pharmaceutical companies were essentially holding their hands in practice so I don't blame patients for losing faith in the western system and on the other hand I don't blame physicians for feeling burnt out
0: yeah there's this massive burden uh, on both and you know increasingly you see uh, the so-called concierge medicine coming up where you have a kind of It almost reminds me of um, like old fashioned doctors who would come and visit your house with a little bag, you know, uh, concierge medicine being where your general practitioner um, gives you a a monitor uh, and, you know, sits with you for an hour and then gives you a a continuous glucose monitor to wear so that they can keep track of your data and, and, you know. Dr. Tro Colladian's doing it. He was on the podcast. Dr. Anthony Lissy down in Texas, uh, he's doing it. Um, I mean, David Unwin in the UK is doing really well with it. He's saving his GP practice 60,000 pounds a year just in diabetes drugs alone. And then if you think about the knock-on effects of that, how the people who are reversing their type 2 diabetes won't be visiting the doctor as much and will have a much better quality of life in other aspects it is such a virtuous circle where there's so many vicious circles right now but I don't think everyone can afford a concierge doctor in America and at the moment it's similar over here the the spread of um, doctors who are recommending uh, lifestyle medicine is patchy but it is growing it's moving in the it's moving in that direction rather than shrinking which is good
1: right so i i'm i went into concierge practice now uh over a year ago well over a year ago at this point point. and what i have found is that not only do i spend more time with patients but because of that initial investment in spending time with patients they actually get better faster and they require less physician help because they get better. In fact, in my practice I sort of look at it like if if I do if I do my job right, you won't need to come see me. And so I look at each case like that and from a personal standpoint I can tell you it is significantly more satisfying from my perspective to be so present with the patients and to really have this feeling where I'm doing literally the best that I can do for you and not shortchanging that at all. And that's a very important feeling to have as a provider not just any physician, that should be a f- important feeling for any healer of any kind. And so my decision to move into a concierge practice was really out of protection of my own wellness because I knew the way things were heading, uh, this was not sustainable. I mean, I could definitely see myself getting more and more burnt out really sort of withering away it's in my opinion the current model is rather dangerous i mean to expose physicians to patients every 20 minutes it's dangerous for the patients and the physicians on multiple
0: levels yeah you you um you know my mom's a counselor and it's unethical to take on too many clients because You know, it's interesting, he's saying about the psychiatrists having uh, the worst rate of mental health themselves. And you can't not take that stuff on board. And seeing so many ill people is distressing.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's another issue that people don't really understand that physicians, when they interact with patients, they're also taking on the pain or trauma or exposure to whatever the stress is. I mean, human beings are energetically quite sensitive to each other, so it's it's a lot, and right now, the current system doesn't actually account for the need for physicians to heal themselves as they heal other people, and part of that involves. Seeing fewer patients, taking breaks in between patients to truly recover. Um,
0: and in the yeah, counsel, I, in the counselling world, I have, you've got um, you've got a, an ethical obligation to have supervision where you discuss um, what the work with your clients did to you emotionally, and you actually yeah. will have to do that, or else you're not allowed to be part of their professional organizations and i wonder if there's any if there's an analog in uh, medicine
1: there's definitely no requirement like that i mean they encourage some institutions will have certain wellness committees but, but that's like an opt-in thing that's not a mandatory thing um
0: you just meant to I suck it up
1: that's that's part of the culture yeah i mean i disagree strongly with that and um that's probably why i ended up going into concierge because i just recognize that there are major systemic issues if the system is sick there's no point in being well in a sick system
0: yeah i I used to be a restaurant manager um before i went into i've had a kind of varied uh, career but um, I was a restaurant manager first when I left school and tables of doctors were interesting because they always just talked about work, you know? They really, I think they really looked forward to meeting up with other doctors so they could get stuff off their chest. I think it was really only teachers that came close in terms of letting off steam in the same way uh, when they were meant to be relaxing. Wow. (laughs) talking shop all the time
1: yeah i mean i i don't have too many doctor friends to be honest most of my friends are comedians
0: (laughs) it's um it's tough to balance gigging with working full time what's your routine like in a typical week
1: well um Full disclosure, I think I'm very good with time management, as you can tell by the amount of times I reschedule this podcast. <laughs> um, what is a typical schedule like? So I have clinic a couple half days throughout the week. Um, I also do some consulting for uh, a startup company, so uh, that will take up. Usually my my daytime hours, you know, Monday through Friday. I try and leave uh, one day a week as a lighter schedule, just to recover and do you know catch up on things, run errands if I need to. And then my evenings really vary. Um, most of the time, I'm performing on the weekends, so like Friday, Saturday, uh, most times of the month. And then um, rarely now, a lot less now, but it used to be quite a bit, um, you know, I'll have a sporadic evening here and there where I'll do a showcase or whatnot. I have cut down on the comedy because uh, I'm now focusing my intention more on doing a one woman show, a storytelling show. And so, I'm trying, I've written it and now I'm sort of honing and crafting it. And so I've found myself doing less stand-up in order to prepare for that show. But before I started writing that show, which I started about a year ago, I was probably gigging mostly in the evenings. But it's, it's exhausting. I mean, the comedy lifestyle is truly a grind. It's truly exhausting. And I would not recommend it to anyone unless they absolutely love it. And I love performing, um, so it's fine for me. But the sleep deprivation can get to you. And so if there ever happens where I have a stretch of, like, three shows back-to-back-to-back, uh, to back to back, three three nights in a row, I mean, that those runs definitely get to me. I get tired. You know, I have to slow down. Uh, I may have to, you know, cancel some – Social engagements to just recover. I mean, that's part of the self-care routine. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much kind of how life goes. And um, and it's definitely busy, but I love it, and I wouldn't I wouldn't switch it out for anything.
0: Yeah, the uh, I was gigging regularly from 2011 to 2016. And I was I was working the whole time in a couple of different jobs, um, full time at the same time, and I kind of got to the stage by twenty sixteen where there was you know I was I was getting uh, paid work in clubs and I was um, I was kind of at that point where professionals were saying to me, look, you should just you know you should start really going for it if you want to you know you should make that leap so that you're able to um ex- you know go from a a tight 10 and a loose 20 to the tight 20 you can start opening and being main support and maybe doing the odd headline slot but i knew that that meant gigging like four or five six nights a week and up really upping the the level of commitment and also at the time 2016 was the year that i discovered eating paleo low carb and so, all the kind of uh, uh, almost all of the uh, kind of um, mental health issues that I think partly fueled my um, comedy persona uh, went away. And so, I lost some of the motivation for doing it. And I didn't really want to do four, five, six nights a week. I just thought it's a fork in the road here. And I'm going to just back off. So I had one really good gig in a a, a venue in Glasgow, which is like kind of a famous venue. And um, I felt like, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have a gig like that for a while. So I'll I'll leave it for just now. Actually, strange uh, the timing. Last night I had a dream that I was doing that I was delivering something to a comedy club. And then they said, oh, why don't you go on stage and do 10 minutes? And I was like, oh God, I haven't, I haven't prepared anything. And uh, <laughs> it was like a stress dream about doing stand-up, but it made me think about it again. And um, hmm. I think once you've done it, it's hard to, it's hard to. the thought of staying away for, from it forever is, is uh, I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll do it again at some point. I'm just not sure how and when exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, when you have a great gig, there's no better feeling. What's What's been your best gig so far?
1: Yeah, um, before I answer that, I just wanna say I totally resonate with your anecdote. You know, they say stand-up, you don't choose stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy chooses you. Yeah. And there have been times where, you know, I've taken a break, but I've never actually quit, you know? um
0: and you, you spoke before best... about um you spoke before on camera about uh depression in the past as well where do you think that fits in with stand-up if yeah at
1: all? so I wasn't depressed when I started doing stand-up I was depressed in medical school and it was because of the environment I was in it was very stressful there was a lot of pressure to do well I wasn't really in the type of supportive environment that I needed to be in and my coping skills weren't the best at the time I was very young so my depression was really a a result of that and the environmental situation once I came out of medical school I was really able to, to to recover from that But that experience was very formative because it's sort of taught me a lot about myself and my limitations. And part of the reason I'm so mindful about wellness and emotional wellness and so kind of self aware about that is because of what I experienced in medical school and the depression I experienced. It really taught me the importance of setting limits, setting boundaries, so much so that now in present day, I'm constantly checking in with myself to see, okay, how are you feeling? Are you overextending? Do you feel comfortable doing this? And it's really shaped my life in a very kind of positive way in that respect. So I wasn't depressed when I started doing stand-up comedy. Uh, The state I was in, I had just broken up with a long-term relationship and as I was kind of processing that uh, I sort of got this thought that you know I want to like face my fears and really um, get to know myself again and one of my fears was stand-up comedy Hmm. Uh, it, it was a solo art I had never done it before I had done improv but that's a group Exercise, it's not a solo. So, I decided to do stand up as a kick of facing a morbid fear of mine. But it ended up being an extremely positive first experience. I got offered a showcase, it's my first open mic. And things really just took off from there. And the rest is kind of history. I do love comedy, Um, even the good nights and bad nights. Yesterday, I performed at a winery uh, about an hour north of San Francisco, and it was a tough audience. They did not want any cerebral or intellectual jokes. They wanted all stuff below the belt all like dirty stuff they just wanted the the crude stuff I mean, it that's was, funny. you know, you may,
0: you might expect that um I, I was thinking when you said a winery that it would be like uh, all Fraser Crane type people
1: exactly exactly but they wanted just the, the they wanted to talk about farts and genitals that's what <laughs> they wanted and uh it was a challenge for me because i can't necessarily say that that is i don't talk too much about that kind of stuff so um you know i loved the challenge i mean i have to be honest it wasn't my best show it was a tough audience they laughed there were there was an applause break here and there but it was a tough room for me and it was it was a nice challenge because it was an opportunity to just keep me on my toes. So I still enjoy the game of it. To me, it's still a game. I like seeing how people are. It's a a way to see different kinds of people that I otherwise wouldn't be exposed to. And it's taught me so much about not just myself. It's taught me so much about life.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... uh it's a profound feeling when it doesn't go well and it's it's a sort of equally profound feeling when it goes amazingly well you know the the um when you're in the depths after a really bad show or like you know you're on top of the world when it goes really well and you can, you, you can never really know how it's going to go you can you can feel like oh i, I feel good tonight um but you, you've got no idea i mean like, there's, there's certain clubs here where you almost know that you're going to have a good show. You know, maybe you're, you're it's a nice club. I'm, th- I'm thinking about the Stand Comedy Club in Glasgow particularly. And a lot of comedians think that it's maybe the the best uh, stand-up comedy club in the UK to play. It's just that perfect room shape. It's like a, a rectangle with the stage in the middle. There's no distractions. This, the audio is great. Uh, the staff are brilliant everyone knows it's a proper comedy club and it's famous so you you you've got that kind of prestige associated with it so people go in thinking that it's you know they're expecting to find you funny which is a big deal you know you you kind of you you can take that in with you for the first couple of laughs and um you know seeing that place fill up when you when you're on is is brilliant because you know it's going to be a great night and then other times you're um playing to uh like one man and his dog and <laughs> it's uh it's just brutal <laughs> and but I, i've seen some really famous comedians do do gigs like that the really quiet ones because they're they're hard working and um but just they've, they've got to it's got the words just have to you know come out their mouth and go back in their ears and you've just got to stand up and try stuff
1: oh you know? totally i mean those gigs with the one man and the dog i mean that's where you really develop as a comedian i think those are the most important gigs because they not only force you to go and be uncomfortable but that's the real test of how committed you are to your material yeah absolutely most of comedy isn't even i mean people you can become funny with effort. I mean, I think the key to to being a successful stand up comedian is staying committed and just continuing to believe that you can do it. I think that honestly you know is one of the most important features of a successful comedian. I mean, it you have to put in the time people don't really develop their voice until 10 years in and you can see the difference in people who have been doing it 10 15 20 years the way they are on stage they they're effortless I mean their energy is totally different than someone who's been doing it within the first five years so I think the first five years is just this giant hazing process to just be like how committed are you and and frankly, it's not for everyone it's not a glamorous lifestyle. It has glamour on the paper, but if you actually look harder, it's really not glamorous you're spending a lot of time with single men and their dogs
0: yeah. i mean um what How does it compare to being a doctor, what, how, do you, how do you compare it <laughs> to?
1: Well, um, that's a really, I mean, you can't, you just can't. It's two totally different experiences. The only thing that comedy and medicine have in common is, there is an art to connecting with people. If you connect with people in comedy, you're more likely to succeed as a comedian. And if you connect with people in medicine, you're more likely to succeed as a doctor too. So that art of really being able to read someone to connect. But frankly, I I think it's more energetic. I don't know how else to explain it. Like an audience can tell if a comedian is nervous or if they're not totally connected to the audience because they can feel it. They can feel when you're not being sincere you don't really even have to say anything it's like they can feel it i think people can feel that from their physicians as well if they they feel like their physician um isn't totally present they can tell human beings can pick up on these subtle signals nonverbal signals
0: yeah i think that's totally true about the honesty i think uh people smell a rat straight away if you go on stage and you're not committed. Even if you're even if it's a a character and you've got to sort of you're committed to the lie if you like. You've got to be you've got to believe it yourself because people smell the bullshit straight away. Um and yeah, I I don't know. I mean so going back to going back to medicine, what um because I want to cover this before we before we run out of time. What well, um, what do you eat? Because it's always interesting when you talk to, uh, doctors who are into lifestyle medicine and, you know, they're talking about lowering carbs to reverse diabetes and, you know, getting rid of sugar from people's diets, but it's always interesting to know what they eat themselves. So what's, what's kind of your journey been like?
1: Yeah. So, I'm. Um, I eat, I eat low carb, um, It's funny because before I learned about the science behind the ketogenic diet, I was eating a low fat, um, you know, primarily vegetarian, uh, I'd eat eggs. I did not grow up in a vegetarian household, but I became vegetarian like in college when I was pre-med and I read the American Heart Association guidelines, and I thought, you know what, I should probably give up animal fats, saturated fats. So I was eating a low fat diet. I was hungry for years. I was just hungry most of the time. I just figured that was the way life was supposed to be. And then I learned about the ketogenic diet, and uh, the science was so compelling. Um I decided, you know, before putting my patients on this diet, I better put myself on it and see what happens. So I started to eat keto. I started out keto vegetarian because I had been vegetarian for, I don't know, seven or eight years. And it was like weird, the idea of eating meat as this experiment. So I started keto vegetarian and then something switched. I mean, I started to feel way better. Something switched and something in my brain was like, I need to eat meat right now. So I started eating meat and then I became, you know, keto. Um, Recently, I've now, uh, I'm basically uh, focusing, I eat low carb, um, focusing primarily on fish. I eat a lot of things from the sea and um, I will have... uh, Fruit seasonally and locally only, and in, in very small batches in it, it it will only if it's organic and I've like spoken to the farmer that sold it, um, so you know that that will happen mostly in the summertime, but um, you know, or if I'm like in Hawaii, I will like eat like one banana and like so I'll eat like one banana a year um uh but primarily i try and eat low carb and my diet usually on a day to day basis is like some kind of sea creature like i um i i buy whole fish and i like gill and gut them and then i eat a lot of like sashimi like raw fish um and then different types of vegetables all organic local um so like last night I cooked, um, I made some fresh sardines and then I made them with like some local vegetables that I had bought from the market. Mm. And, um, I, yeah, so that's kind of usually my diet. And then if I, if I feel hunger, you know, I'll eat high fat nuts or some, something with oil in it, something fatty. Um, but it's interesting cause you know, my diet really is pretty pretty stable and if i do have more hunger it's usually because maybe i'm stressed or busy but um fish really helps i really enjoy like fish and sardines and mackerel and scallops and those kind of things
0: Mm. i'm not surprised absolutely delicious i was just thinking about all the nutrients you get from fish and uh, a friend of mine who i worked with in a fish restaurant had lived in Angola and he told me that they used to fight each other over who was going to get the eyes ah and i'd never eaten fish eyes before he suggested it and then and now i eat them all, all the time whenever i've whenever I've, I've cooked a whole fish i don't know if you've ever tried the eyes
1: you know i i have not because i read about how most of the mercury in fish gets Solidified into the the eyes. I mean, I don't know if that. Maybe that's not a right statement. I don't know if you know anything about that.
0: I've never heard of that. I've I, I know that um, most of the fish that I eat are low down the food chain, and I'm not that bo- I'm not that concerned that there's much mercury in them. You know, unless you're eating tuna or swordfish or something like that, right, like right. you know, the size of a car, and they're eating all this, it's <laughs> all all the mercury's getting concentrated up. I've never had I've never had a tuna eyeball. I've probably, it's probably like the size of a a football. I don't know. <laughs> scary, like a handful. But um, I'm thinking, you know, the the concentration you know, the concentration of uh, vitamin A in fish eyes is huge. So you get a massive. Really. Fat. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who it was. There was a story of a an explorer who'd uh, got lost somewhere in North America. I think it might have been the Canadian tundra and he uh went blind and um it was basically malnutrition and the guy that found him knew what knew what was going on and fed him fish eyes and he uh, regained his sight and then, wow yeah uh I can't, I'll, I'll need to dig that um that uh that story out i can't remember i can't remember who it was but it did actually happen so, wow. and they're delicious. They're absolutely delicious. It's not like I'm grimacing because I'm trying to get my vitamin A. It's like, I look forward to it. I save it to last. So
1: uh, how do you cook the fish eyes?
0: So you just, you just, if you're baking the fish, then right. they'll cook. And you just uh, stick your finger into the, the eye socket. And the, it's like, a, basically the, I think it's the fluid that was in the eye. And I'm not sure if it includes the outer bit, but it basically pops out like a white ball. And you can also, in some fish, get like uh, the stuff that surrounds it comes out too. And it's all really tasty. It's like, uh, you know how sometimes you can just tell that something's packed with nutrition? It's like um, liver maybe, although I don't really like the taste of liver, but you just know that there's so much in there. Uh, it's the same with the fish eyes, but they're, they're so delicious. I love them.
1: Wait, but when you post, So do you just stick your finger in the eye socket and pull it out? I'll pull out the goo and the Isn't there like a small like um cartilaginous ball that comes out too?
0: Yeah, that's it. I take the ball, I eat the ball. That's nice. And uh the the stuff that comes out with it. Yeah. This and sometimes
1: conversation is disgusting.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe
1: I'll try it though. Maybe I'll try it
0: that's uh, the brutality of um, life as a meat-eater.
1: Well, yeah, that's true. But I mean, if we weren't supposed to eat meat, then why, why did the universe create omega-3 essential fatty acids? And why, did, why are human beings required to use uh, omega-3s to live? And why can that only be obtained by animal products?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, a needle scratcher. I mean, what's your take on patients who want to be vegetarian or vegan and who have diabetes? Do you think that's compatible with good quality care?
1: Well, so my approach is um, if someone has diabetes and they're vegan, before even giving them any dietary advice, I will uh, order labs to confirm the diabetes and then I will also... Check other vitamins like their ferritin or iron levels, their vitamin D levels. I'll check omega 3 levels, B12, and I will see. And typically, if someone's been vegan for some time and you measure these things, you'll find deficiencies. And once you show them the data and you show them the lab saying, like, look, these are the deficiencies that you have if uh, eating meat could reverse these deficiencies more so than supplements. Um, A lot of times, if people are open to new data, they they usually are open to the idea of integrating meat. But some people, if they have a fixed belief that under no circumstances must they eat animals, you know, it's hard because even after showing them the data, you know, there, there's. Sh- if they still don't want to ch- change, then I'm not sure what else you can do at that point.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, it's a fair point. The, I, the last podcast I recorded that, who, and I think that's going to be the the next one I release tomorrow, is Dr. Sylvia carpagam who's an Indian doctor who is written about the impression that the world has that India is a vegetarian country where it's actually predominantly a meat-eating country and the imposition on poorer members of um, particular castes Mm. uh, where vegetarianism is is the norm um, where the people who have more money in the castes keep all the nutritious vegetarian food and eat eggs as well and so Mm. it's all uh, paneer and ghee and eggs and then the they, but they they insist that the poorer members of the cast have um, remain remain vegan, uh, mm. I, but it's all grains, and um, it's uh, a pretty uh, dire situation because you've got um, you know you've got uh, chronic energy deficiency, you've got stunting and growth, you've got brain development issues. It's really really in a dire situation um and you know her main point is it's okay for someone to choose to eat in a way that might put themselves at risk if they know the uh if they know the 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 that the, there is a chance that they, they might get ill but she doesn't want to see anyone impose a diet on other people whether that's vegetarianism or meat eating which i think is fair yeah. enough
1: right that's fair
0: um yeah one thing one last thing i wanted to ask you um because you 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 focused on carbs and sugar uh when you talked to the the uh, guideline committee have you looked into the potentially damaging effects of vegetable oils at all
1: well i it was an intentional move to just focus on one thing that i specifically chose sugar because I believe that's the one thing right now that even vegans and low-carb physicians can agree on. I figured if we could at least unite on that first, then we could have conversations about the other stuff. So I didn't want to go into anything else besides that. And that's because I think we got to just pick our battles.
0: That makes sense. Need as many people on side as possible, and I think yeah. when you start um, getting into it, where you 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 know you've got a series of uh, demands that are some of which are contested, then you can just uh, get kind of bogged down, and a lot of yeah. the arguments that end up happening online are between doctors who um, advocate for vegetarian diets and doctors that advocate for diets that have meat in them and then like you say they would both agree that that uh, sugar should be uh identified as something that's not good Um, right i've got um tucker goodrich he's been on already and my old physics professor uh ken strain um who came on and they're both um as far as they're concerned sugar's bad but vegetable oils are public enemy number one so i'm getting them on for a um a, a three-way call to talk about vegetable oil soon but I to see what you thought about it
1: well I think there's definitely something to the oxidization of them at high temperatures for sure um you know if I cook with vegetable oil it's primarily at very low temperatures and um
0: I guess you don't make it a central part of your diet. Are you trying to avoid them uh, to some extent?
1: I do not I don't I'm not avoiding them, but I don't I don't cook them at higher temperatures. Okay. Um I don't consume a lot of them though, not to my knowledge. So
0: Okay, interesting. Well, um, I guess we can wrap it up there. I, I really appreciate you coming on and it's been fascinating to hear about uh, life as a, a doctor slash comedian in San Francisco <laughs> Where's your next yeah. gig?
1: Um, next gig, I'm actually flying to Tennessee to perform for some college students next week
0: Cool, that's different from a, a San Fran winery
1: yeah 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 it's gonna be very very interesting so i'm looking forward to that it's my first time in tennessee
0: where is it in tennessee
1: chattanooga
0: i've only heard of the chattanooga choo-choo
1: yeah yeah so that's you and me both
0: <laughs> oh well but i'm sure you thank you, you come so much with...
1: for having me
0: yeah you're welcome i was i'm really glad that you, we could uh, finally make it happen and um you know, more power to you for uh, speaking boldly to, um, to people who could do with uh, bucking up their ideas.
1: Thank you, thank you so much.
0: And um, I'll, keep, I'll keep in touch and uh, look forward to speaking to you again sometime soon.
1: All right, ciao, thanks.
0: Thanks. Thanks for listening everyone please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk which is my company. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks and see you next time.